Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and thanks for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some pretty difficult topics sometimes. Sometimes um, they're... um, um, informational, sometimes they're entertaining, sometimes I think they're always uh, important, and I think we have a very important topic today. Uh, We're talking about maternal health. Now, I think this is a big concern in general, but I think it's also a bigger concern when we look at rural and um, um, uh, poorer areas of our country. And joining me is a woman who knows all about this, Dr. Keisha Callan. Thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, Dr. Callens, may I call you Keisha? You may call me Keisha. Is, is it Keisha or Keisha? I should ask. It's Keisha. Keisha, okay. Um, Keisha. I have a, a, actually a, a niece who is named, um, her, her name is spelled the same as yours, and she pronounces it Keisha, so I, I just was assuming there. But thank you for joining us. Doctor, you are um, right in the, the thick of it when we talk about poor, when we talk about rural, and we talk about maternal health. Please tell us what what you do as an OBGYN and where do you practice? Well, currently I'm practicing in Albany, Georgia. I'm with um, Albany Area Primary Healthcare, which is a federally qualified health center that has a number of specialties, but in particular we do offer um, OBGYN um, services to the community. Um, So basically a general OBGYN at this time. Okay. And how long have you been in practice? Um, I actually have been in practice since 2011. Um, I actually went to school at Morehouse School of Medicine for both residency and also um, for medical school. And so I moved um, to Albany, and I've been practicing here since that time. Okay. Why Albany? Why did you choose to go there? Well, it's interesting. I'm actually a National Health Service Corps scholar. And so through that program, it's a national program that's federally funded, and their um, support is to enroll um, medical students and to actually offer payment for medical school. And in exchange, when you complete your medical school training and your residency training, you will go to an underserved area to um, give back to that community for the number of years that you've been provided um, on financial support. So for me, that was about four years. And so I looked around, tried to stay in the area that was kind of close to where my home base was. And so um, Albany was the closest um, place that I could identify at the time. And so that was the number one spot. Yeah. So, but you're, you've met your, met your commitment now, haven't you? I mean, and yet I, you're still there. I have. I have. Um, it's interesting. Um, you know, Albany is a place that I have really grown to love and enjoy working, primarily because um, there is such a need here um, for um, primary care services, and particularly OBGYN services. In my practice in particular, because I'm a federally qualified health center, we do see a large number of the patients who are uninsured or who have Medicare or Medicaid in terms of their um, financial or health care affordability. And so for that reason, um, our services are very important, and I um, want to continue serving in that capacity because the need is so great here in terms of our high-risk population and just women who are underserved in general. Okay. When you say federally funded or federally qualified, what does what does that mean? I'm not familiar with that term. Yeah, so FQHC is kind of like a grading system that they've um, given to community health centers. They look at the population and they look at the number of primary care providers in that area and they come up with what's kind of like a score. So that score can range anywhere from, I don't know the lowest number, but it can be, you know, 7 or 8 or 14 or up to even 21. And so that allows them to help to meet the need of those particular areas. So scholars, um, for example, which is the service that I completed, we try to go to areas of higher need. They're also loan repairs um, who will join up after residency, and they can go to areas where there are um, areas of need as well because it just helps them to distribute um, the services that are available to places that really need it. Okay. All right. Um, when you are – so you see people through the hospital. You don't have, like, uh, you didn't hang out your shingle and have people come to you outside of the That's hospital correct. in a separate practice? That's correct, yes. Okay. We, how About how many people, pregnant ladies do you see in a month? 
Well, I guess I should be able to give you a number, but I can't. But it's a lot, a large number. In my particular practice, we actually are fortunate we have three physicians currently, and then we also have four midwives. So it actually is a very busy practice. And even with that, I mean, we can see um, anywhere from, you know, up to 20 people a day per person, depending on who's on. And then we also provide services to the hospital as well, being on call to cover our obstetrics and GYN emergency services. So we see a large number. I mean, I don't have an exact number, but but it's, it's a lot because we have a lot of providers and we're all very busy. Yeah. So of your, the patients that you see, how many of them would you estimate are below the federally mandated um, um, poverty line? You know, it would be hard for me to give an exact estimate, but I will tell you that um, way more than half. Um, again, we actually offer something very unique in our practice. We do what's called a sliding fee scale. So anyone who does not have insurance, which is the category of the working poor, so to speak, um, people that kind of are in the middle who can't really afford health insurance or don't have private insurance can come in. They can provide documentation of, you know, their home address, um, their pay stubs, and they can actually receive services. And so for that reason, we do see a large number of um, patients in our area and the surrounding communities. The really nice thing about Albany area as well is that we have kind of an umbrella service. So while I'm in the women's health section, we do offer services like primary care, I mean, pediatrics in particular, internal medicine, family medicine. We do dentistry, podiatry, even psychiatry. So those services, which previously would not be accessible to other people in the community, are now accessible through our sliding fee scale program, which is a huge benefit. And then also our patients who are either private insurance or who have Medicare and Medicaid can also access those services. So it really becomes a nice network and an umbrella of really comprehensive care. Okay. So um, you see, I mean, 20 patients a day, I can't imagine, um, in the first place, I can't imagine that kind of a load. Um, And in the second place, I can't imagine um, being able to have any kind of relationship with patients at that level. But that's kind of healthcare today, isn't it? Um, That that you just, I don't know how how you guys establish relationships in that (laughs) fast of a turnover that's required. If you talk to someone who's in private practice, they probably see more patients than that. That's actually probably a lower number because, yes, the way healthcare is designed, we are challenged to be more productive and hence see more patients. However, I think that with a federally um, qualified health center model, which is kind of where I'm in, you are able to still do that. I mean, 20 is a lot, but the thing is there are lots of patients who need help. And even though I may see that many a day, if patients are calling in to see me, they may have to wait. New patients or, or sometimes follow-ups are waiting sometimes two months to get in for another appointment. So it's not, I mean, that number is that way because the demand is so great. Um, and speaking yeah. to your direct question about developing relationships, it's definitely possible. Um, one of the things that I pride myself about about our, our office is we do offer quality health care. And I have become very close to a lot of my patients, and all the providers, I think, practice in a very similar way, where we are able to establish that relationship. And that relationship component is exactly what's important to help change behaviors, and we do that. I mean, talking to a young woman about her reproductive care and what her birth control methods are going to be after baby and having her come back in and do that, that comes from relationships. So it's definitely still possible to do that, even with the structure of time. Yeah. Okay, let's talk specifically about maternal health. Now, I was doing my homework for this show, and I discovered some fairly alarming statements and statistics, uh, at least, you know, on the Internet, and and everybody knows Google doesn't lie, right? Um, But there's – can we talk a little bit about how the United States does in general uh, about maternal health care? What – but what I was seeing was kind of alarming. It was like, really? I mean, and we're not just talking, these these numbers are not just talking about poor and rural women. They're talking about maternal health care in general. I had a baby 28 years ago, and I remember being absolutely appalled looking at the, the numbers when I was pregnant 28 years ago and discovered that as a pregnant woman delivering a baby, I had a 1 in 5,000 chance of dying from having that baby. Mm-hmm. The numbers that I saw doing my research for the show 
are now one in 1,800 chance of dying from having a baby. Is that right? Um, the numbers don't look very good for us, to be honest with you. Um, there are a lot of things that are probably contributing to that number. Of course, there's always a possibility there's some difference in reporting that could skew that number. Um, but in all honesty, um, we're not doing good, and we're not doing good for a number of reasons. Um, a couple of things is I think three major categories, if I could break them down for you, um, differences in quality of care, depending on where you are, where you live, and who you are. I mean, race definitely does play a role in that. A lot of, in terms of our U.S. statistics, you know, minority populations are the ones who usually have the numbers that don't look as good. Um, differences is in that because care. of economic? Is that economic, you think? Um, it's Or is there something else with like that? Well, okay, all right. If, if being familiar, for example, with the social determinants of health really kind of gives you a, a good model of how to look at that number. Education is one arm of that. Economic stability is another arm of that. Healthcare and healthcare resources, the health of the population is a part of that. The social environment is a part of that, what's available to you. Um, all those things kind of play into that access role. Does that make okay. sense? Yep, yep, that does. Okay. And and so, I know exactly, I grew up poor in, in Ohio, in rural Ohio, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, that was a long time ago, and we use you, we utilize healthcare differently now than we did back then. But nevertheless, I mean, I think my father went to the hospital once in his life, and it was only because they made him do it because he broke his ankle at work. That's exactly. I mean, you the just point. didn't you just right. didn't go. You know, it so was it was it was either seen as something expensive as a luxury, or something that was unnecessary. Um, and and, and so I'm familiar today. with that that mindset, you know, uh, that that you know, um, you know, that that comes with um, um, being uneducated. I guess is the, an appropriate terminology for that. Um, so I'm I'm familiar with that, and I understand that. It also has to do with the money. I mean, if you don't have money, you don't spend it. And I mean, that's that. <laughs> or if, you know. if you don't have a lot, you spend it very differently. Um, I had a patient that I saw in my office recently um, who just said, you know, over the last, she'd gained some pounds over the holiday. And I said, you know, what happened? She said, to be honest with you, you know, I really didn't have a lot of money. And so my kids and I were going to fast food restaurants, which at which point I said, you know, I said, okay, but, you know, fast food is not that cheap either. So I said to her, and this is the education component, and this is the health component, and this is the prevention component, do you know that you can buy a bag of dried beans and some rice you can make beans and rice, and what you could spend on one meal, probably from a fast food restaurant, could last for three or four people for maybe two days because when it, it, it's just, just that much. So, again, that's education. That's understanding nutrition. That's understanding how to use the dollars that you do have wisely. And poverty and lack of education do not help that. But there's also a time component. Mm-hmm. Usually, you know, I mean, there's not – there's not as much time to do the cooking and do the, you know, you, you've got kids, you've got the job, you've got whatever, you're barely scraping by, and, you know, you go through the McDonald's drive-thru, you can get the, you know, the $1 menu, and, yes, maybe you can go spend the same amount, you know, getting the beans and the rice, but then you have to go home and you have to cook it, and beans and rice don't cook, cook quickly, you know. <laughs> well, well, right? That's, that's correct. However... We're dealing, again, with education. So for me, and I use myself as an example to my patients all the time because I I do that. I try to do things and help them with the things that I do. I have two crock pots, which do not cost a lot if you can go to Walmart and get one. I put the beans in at night when I'm going to bed, and when I wake up in the morning, they're done. So giving them very practical examples of how to do that, again, that stems from education. And, yes, we don't have a lot of time. The problem today a lot of the times is that our society is very different. You know, back when I was growing up, you know, I could go to my aunt's house and I could eat, or I could have someone that would comb my hair, or someone else would home, help me with homework. Now we're living kind of in these pockets, and we're not connecting the same that we used to. Um, we're living in a community, but it's not really the same kind of community. The whole idea that a village raises a child is not the same anymore. That was one of the reasons that things are very different and not as good as they used to be, because we don't have that social support. So if two or three moms got together and said, okay, I'm going to cook tonight, you cook tomorrow, because I'm working late, it could work, but again, that's education and that's planning and that's tra- being strategic in what we do. Yeah. Well, and then that brings us full circle to you know when you have babies, your family and learning from your parents and learning from your mother are it, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. 
if you are not around a mother or if you're around a mother or an aunt or, you know, that you're learning from and and they are not aware of some of the developments and and things, you know, I can see that as being really detrimental. It is. It is. Do you see that? Definitely. And it becomes almost like a cycle because if you have a young mom who has a child who then becomes a young mom, who has a child who then becomes a young mom, it's like those important skills don't get transferred. And so what you're dealing with is a culture that's defined by a persistent lack of knowledge that has not been shared. And that 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 is definitely what we see because we're seeing moms that are having babies that are having babies. And so it doesn't ever really work out very well. Well, and let's talk about that. What uh, among the other stuff that I that I read when I was doing my research is mm-hmm. that if you have young mothers you have a higher risk of disease, you have a higher risk of uh, mortality, and you have a higher risk of all sorts of bad outcomes. In your population that you see, how many, what percentage approximately of your patients are, say, under 20? Well, um, it's actually, it's hard for me to give you a percentage. I mean, I I don't usually think about my numbers in those categories, but I will tell you that The good news is it seems that nationally the rates of teenage pregnancies are going down, okay? That's what the newest numbers are saying, and there are a lot of reasons why that's happening. However, we do do still see a large number of young patients. It's not just first-time pregnant moms that I'm seeing that are under 20. It's the moms that are having their second and third child that are under 20. That's also concerning. And so I think the repeat pregnancies is still a segment that's just as important as those first-time moms that are becoming pregnant. Um, I wanted to just add one more thing when we talked about what are the differences. Differences in life opportunity, exposure, and stress. Okay, when you think about, you know, if you mentioned, you know, growing up in poverty, think of how that impacts how you feel, your decisions, whether or not you think your life is going to go anywhere, lack of opportunity. All those things play a role into our young moms and their decision-making. We all know that studies have shown more education means better decision-making, which means better planning. So if we don't have that education component and we're lacking that, especially in our young women, then that's kind of where things kind of get started going downhill. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And that makes perfect sense. Um, that, and I love the way that you, you put that. Maybe, um, you know, that the, the poverty uh, impacts life opportunity, um, exp- exposure, and stress. I mean, I, I, that's very succinctly put because that's exactly what it does. It impacts all of those things. Um, and, again, I saw that, you know, growing up. So um, I was I was always amazed as an adult when I realized that other people grew up differently and that, that if in fact, meant that they had different outlooks on life. It seemed to me that I grew up, in, you know, as a poor person, learning that you couldn't do things. Mm-hmm. And as I encountered people who grew up with uh, more economic opportunity, I realized that they looked at the world as if they could do things. Absolutely. Do, does that does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? Yeah, it does, and that's one of the things that's really awesome, and that's why one of the reasons why I'm still here practicing, because, first of all, let me back up. Okay, one of the reasons I went into OBGYN is because Initially, I wanted to be a pediatrician, but then I really figured out somewhere at the end of medical school that if I could change the female in the family, which is usually the center of the family, if I could change that mom, I could impact the whole family, her kids, her husband, her family, her church, because moms are the center of it all, okay? So that's why focusing on women is so important, and that's kind of what kind of made me change from pediatrics to go into OBGYN. Now, having said what you said, when I have a young woman in my room, if I can talk to her enough, I can get her to think about, you know, graduating. Um, I ask her about college. You know, what are you going to do? Start setting some standards. Be a positive role model even. I have a young lady who recently graduated, and she's going to University of Virginia, which is where I went to um, to college. Amazing, okay? So wow, a little yeah. bit of encouragement, being a role model, helping people set goals, ask them, well, what do you want to do? You know, I have a lot of people will say that, Professions, you know, usually they have something that it does not really um, generate a lot of income. 
get them to think outside the box. You know, I never thought about doing that. You know, do you want to be a teacher? Do you want to be a nurse? Do you want to be a doctor? And everyone doesn't have to be a doctor or a lawyer, but we've got to do something where you can earn a decent living. And right now, a lot of people are not thinking they can do that. And so the provider in this community, however the health care provider presents itself, can be a source of encouragement. And that positive reinforcement can help affect the health outcome because you're helping that woman to think differently. Okay, so let's try, and we're getting a little off track, but not completely. Um, So we're dealing with poverty, which brings with it a whole entire mindset and a view of life and opportunity and stress and all that other stuff. And then we're dealing with girls getting pregnant. Right. Why do young girls get pregnant? I mean, I know the mechanics of why they get pregnant, (laughs) but... You know, it seems to me, and I'm I'm trying to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here, we supposedly have education, birth control is supposedly readily accessible. Why would a young girl get pregnant? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Um, some of them are simple and some of them are complicated. A simple reason is really lack of preparation. So you hit on a good point. We have the resources available. We have programs now offered through my office there's Planning for Healthy Babies, there's Title X, um, where you can come into my office, you can you know, give us your demographics, look at your information, and you can walk out with birth control, anywhere from condoms to pills to a Mirena IUD, which would cost $1,000, okay? So we have the resources now. But the problem is getting to it, number one, and also people having the concept of decision-making to make the right choice. Why is that important? A lot of times we're dealing with younger women who our maturity affects our decision-making. The decisions you make the way you think at 25 are different than when you're 16. So at 16, we have a developmental issue because the decision-making is not really mature just yet. So we have the resources, but it's getting people to them and to use them. Transportation is a huge factor in my community, okay? I have people who, you know, they can't get to us or, you know, we have to, do very creative things to kind of get there. And it's hard to believe that transportation in 2016 could be such an issue, but it is. So that's one issue. If I were to jump to the more complex things, I have actually encountered um, families, like say I've had a young female who had a miscarriage, she was about 16, where the mom was encouraging her to have a baby. And you might say, well, why would her mom do that? Well, sometimes in this particular female, this mom, she said, I know I'm not going to live very long, and I would like to see a grandchild before I die. I had oh never heard that. Oh, my. Okay. I had never heard that. So basically, when you look at it from the outside, it doesn't really make sense, but when you really start to get a handle of the dynamics of what's going on in our community, you realize that that maternal and that woman's health issue, that's affecting how that grandma is thinking because she now is directing her child's behavior because of what she has experienced and what's going on with her. A lot of times when we counsel women about birth control, you know, one of the common things we get back in terms of feedback is, well, I've got to ask my grandma, or my grandma doesn't think that. And that's not blaming the grandma, but I want to help you understand that those influences based on their experience affects the decisions sometimes they're making. There are a lot of myths about how birth control can be harmful and birth control can cause cancer, but none of that, um, and, and there are risks to all the things that we do, However, we also know the cost of raising a child and the impact on the community of doing that in a, in a good fashion sometimes outweighs that. So there are benefits and risks. But, again, that decision-making doesn't happen really good when you're 16, unless you have a mom like I did who threatened me <laughs> and told me I, <laughs> I didn't. Okay? You and won't I mean, have to I worry live. about raising that child because I'll kill you. No. No. I mean, I lived with that fear for a long time. Even when I got married, I was still terrified, okay? But that that fear factor does not work the same way today. So, again, yeah. I think there are a lot of dynamics that, that falls into that. Going back to one more thing, you know, goals. When you have goals, you make different decisions. When you think, I'm going to do this thing, then you don't do whatever. You're very purposeful about it, right? And I think that yeah, lack yeah, of I think you know, going back to what I was saying, is yeah. you know, there's there there's a limit to the possibilities you see when you grow up poor. Yep. When you grow up with resources and exposure to the world and what there is out there, right? You tend to see possibilities. Right. 
that and, you and, don't and see when let's you're poor. Let's add one more thing in there. Let's just say, you know, when, when you have a baby, you have someone who's totally dependent on you, someone who loves you, who looks to you for everything. And even though that is sometimes a challenging thing, um, our natural human nature is to care for or be cared for. And so yeah. maybe it's possible that part of that comes from wanting to have that interaction, not having had it in another, in another fashion, and trying to create that. Right? That's yeah. complicated. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, it is. And and actually, you know, I mean, we've talked about that um, culture, you know, in our culture for a number of years, you know, that, that especially with young children that, you know, perhaps don't have and or don't, or don't think that they have anyone to care about them or love them. They'll just kind of grow their own, um, when it, you know, if and when they have that opportunity. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm still yeah. seeing women who um, are you on. I ask, are you on birth control? No. Um, are you trying to get pregnant? No. Are you sexually active? Yes. And when I say that, I say to them, does that sound like it makes sense out loud? I actually ask them that because my thought process, based on where I'm coming from, is that if you're not trying to pregnant to get pregnant, then you will do something to prevent it or you will not have sex. But that does not happen. I cannot tell you how often I see that, where people are active and they're not using something. And it's there. It's available. Decision making. So, so why is there that thinking? I mean, is that just like magical thinking? Well, it's not going to happen to me, that children and young people are notorious for their magical thinking. Or does that have something, is it a subconscious wish to get pregnant and have the baby? Or what, Why? I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> I'm working mm-hmm. on it. <laughs> okay. Well, when you do publish it, I'm sure many, many people will be interested. I have um, okay. So let's get back to the whole health issue, not necessarily okay. just the psychological issue. So okay. we have young people um, who encounter what particular um, dangers in having babies. Why are we seeing health issues? Why are we seeing maternal health? And since we're talking mostly about maternal health, we'll kind of set aside issues on, on infant health and infant mortality. But what about maternal health when we're talking young girls? What are well, the risks and dangers there? What we're seeing, believe it or not, is, you know, there's a time where chronic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, seizure disorders of the sort would be something that you would see when you were older. Older meaning, and I don't want to insult any particular age, so I won't put a number out there, but, you know, typically it's something that's seen in a more mature population. Now mm-hmm. I have women who are 22 who are on two blood pressure medicines because their blood pressure is that high. Obesity is definitely a contributing factor. But I think the profile of um, a lot of women, particularly maybe in the rural community, I don't know, um, you know, how far that extends in terms of my theory, but there are a lot of younger women who have chronic medical issues. Diabetes in particular is something that you would not usually see until someone was older. Now I have young girls coming in who are diabetic and knew that for a while, may not be well controlled, and then they get pregnant, and then that affects their outcomes. So I think we have a bigger prevalence actually of chronic medical issues that have not been addressed. And studies have shown that majority of things that affect the pregnancy and the pregnancy outcomes happen before the pregnancy actually occurs, which is why any efforts that we do, and I know we'll talk about the at the end, any efforts that we do need to be focused on looking at maternal health pre-pregnancy before it ever even happens because those are the things that actually affect the outcomes for mom and for babies after they're born. Okay. You have a certain number of pregnant teenagers that come in, they give birth, and, you know, they they manage to... Um, you know, uh, survive it and, and everybody is okay. But then how frequently do you see repeat pregnancies? I see it a fair amount, but I will tell you that we are doing some really good things to make a difference in that area, and, and a lot of things are happening across the state. One of the most important things that we've done here recently is to offer long-acting reversible contraceptives in the hospital. So that means that when someone delivers, there are some long-term um, devices like a Nexplanon, which is a three-year birth control, or a Mirena IUD, which is a five-year um, birth control. They can get that in the hospital before they leave. So if we are concerned about whether or not their follow-up will be sufficient for us to do it in the clinic setting after the baby's delivered, we can actually do that. That's number one. Number two, I think we're doing a better job of really um, promoting um, health 
in terms of encouraging breastfeeding. Um, we do childbirth classes, for example, in my office. We've done that now for a number of years to kind of help that. Also, just to take it back even further, you know, usually with the prenatal visit, we're having that conversation with that young woman almost every time she comes in while she's pregnant. What are your plans? What are you going to do? What method do you want? What have you heard? What can we help you talk about? Providing information. And so I think a lot of things are really going to help that end. And I think as a result of that, the dynamics are starting to change. They're not huge numbers just yet, but they are changing. And so I think um, that's also probably why some of the national numbers are starting to turn down, because we're really targeting the accessibility issue and removing those barriers um, for women when they're younger. Now, does it vary from state to state? Um, the, the rules, I, I mean, I know, I mean, I don't think there's any state that does this now, but, I mean, 20 years ago, uh, some states would have it, the girl would have to get permission before she could get any kind of birth control, from, permission from a parent. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and are, so are those rules still in effect anywhere that you're aware of, or have we, we moved we, past we that? Do. You're still considered emancipated once you're pregnant. Um, so if you are uh, under 16, um, or maybe wrong, maybe it's even 18, um, you do have to get permission, because every now and then I do have to get permission from my mom for me to go ahead and do birth control. Um, so that definitely becomes an issue. However, I will tell you that um, I have a lot of moms bringing their daughters to me saying, I want you to talk to her, I've had this concern, what can we do? I'm seeing that a lot more, and I am actually really happy about that. Now, there are definitely ways to think about that differently, okay? My preference would be for my girls not to be sexually active at all until they were married. That is my preference. Abstinence is still the best and safest way to go. However, mm-hmm. knowing the world that we're in, I talk to my moms now more. I, you, I talk about birth control more like car insurance, like you don't expect to have an accident, but you have it. That way, if something happens, you're covered. And so that's kind of how I've been trying to promote that. Um, Just talking to my girls about, you know, you getting pregnant would be a really big deal. You're smart. You're at the top of your class. You're doing really good. I really want you to finish college. And so really promoting that, um, you know, having that safety net there is kind of how I'm starting to promote that with my young girls. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be effective? I think I'm making some difference. (laughs) Okay. All right. I mean, I mean, again, what I'm hearing is that you're showing them possibilities. Definitely, I think, I think, I think that's happening, and I, I'm, I'm seeing the difference. You know, I'm, I'm having my yeah. girls to bring me their report cards, and I tell them, you know, we'll do something for A's and B's. I don't do C's, and so I have girls who are, you know, the end of the nine weeks, and they bring their, they bring their report cards in. I mean, I'm, and I think that's the kind of motivation that it takes, person by person to start making a difference in the way people start to think about things. Hmm. So let's get back to the actual physical health challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I know women who have had multiple pregnancies, and I swear to you, it, I mean, it, it takes years off their lives. Is that just my perception? I mean, it, it just seems, I mean, you, yeah, you see the occasional one that, you know, can have five or six kids and she looks great, or who's that woman that had 20 kids or whatever, they made a TV show out of her. You know, she looks nice and healthy. But I, most people, I mean, isn't it just, I mean, it just rings you out to go through a pregnancy and a delivery. And for people who do that multiple times, I can't imagine that that doesn't have some sort of purple, person. Um, uh, perpetual issues with them. Am I just making that up? I I don't really think of it that way. I think pregnancy is a beautiful thing, and I think that, you know, the way God designed us, we probably should all have more. However, I think that yes. the part that gets in there is just our environment and, again, um, that stress and those opportunities. Now, if you are hopefully married and settled and you have great income and money's not an issue, then having 10 kids is probably not a big deal. But I think what's happening is we do have some women who are raising those five or four kids on their own. It's hard for them to, you know, maintain, and that's it's that stress that's affecting them. I don't think it's the pregnancy, per se, or the childbirth. I mean, childbirth is awesome. I mean, you know, it's challenging, but nothing better than to really, you know, bring up your own offspring. But I think it's all yeah. the other stuff in the environment that's really wearing on our women. And if they're busy all the time and they have four kids, they're not going to cook a proper meal probably, right, especially if they don't know how to. They're going to go through the fast food line. Fast food line. I did. <laughs> I did. You know, that's, that's the 
problem. And the thing is, what's really crazy is, okay, so society now is different, okay? So 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people would bake their own bread, they would wash their own clothes, they would starch and iron everything, right? So we have a whole Whoa, wait a minute. Life here, <laughs> yeah, you right? have to go back more than 20 years for that. Okay. <laughs> okay. But we have all these things to make our life easier, but we have less time, right? Yeah. That's great. Right. Right. Yeah. Something's not adding up, and I think again it goes back to the society where we used to like there are moms that used to be around and help to raise the grandkids, and everybody kind of had a community feel, and the stress was not the same, right? It's yeah. different. Yeah, today. I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, you know, so many people move, but I think, I mean, this, I mean, really, you're talking the last thirty years or so of this. It's not just the last. 10 or 15 years of this. I mean, people have been moving away from families. People have been, you know, um, and and when you're talking about children and raising children, I mean, that's just brutal to, to try and raise children with no family support. It's really tough. Plenty of us do it, but mm-hmm. it, it can be brutal, and it's certainly not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, but sometimes, sometimes, it can also be detrimental having that family around. I mean, I'm thinking of your story about the woman who wants her kid to have a kid. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, different um, uh, notions that people have had uh, and heard from their parents about how to raise children. And, you know, I mean, some of that can be pretty detrimental as well. So I don't know. All I know is that when you don't have family around, it's awfully hard to raise children. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, and and so if you're talking about you know ha- not having support and not have and not adding to the stress and adding to you know all of the stuff that's going on for a woman that that can't be helpful <laughs> that cannot be useful <laughs> you know and and, and so, really the village the village concept is really where things need to be and I I have had young patients for example I had an 18 year old who had just had her third baby and I was hunting at her 18? down 18 mm-hmm. yes 18. I was hunting her down to get her on something for birth control, okay? So first of all, you would think somebody in her family would be the one that would be begging me to do something, right? They would bring her to her appointment, or they would show up, or they would help to facilitate that, right? That's what I would expect. But Mm -hmm. I had to get a patient navigator to find my patient, okay, and the house that she was listed where she was living was not where she was, and she had to go and find her and bring her in. I had to talk to her aunt on the phone and go through a lot of things to get her into my office, okay, for me to get her on something. So that village concept is we've got to take responsibility for our own. We do. You know, we we have to do a better job of that, sister to sister, mom to daughter. Well, is that easier to you for you to do as a medical professional than it would be for just anybody to do, though? Um... Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, yes and no. It may be easier because sometimes coming from an outside person, things are absorbed better, so that's possible. But also, the other part of that is if you have to identify with people. And some people I can identify with, but that's not everyone, and that's why having a team of people, not just a healthcare provider, but having the community and having um, other people involved to help that process works well. Because it's not just the provider, and that's the thing is we're only thinking of it maybe as a provider's responsibility, but it's everybody's problem. Every woman yeah. that's affected, it's everybody's problem. Yeah, that's true. So, okay, so we're talking these grim statistics on maternal health and maternal health care in the United States. Why are other countries doing it better? Some other countries, obviously not all. <laughs> Complicated question. Let's see if we can pull that apart. So one of the things that I think is important is, you know, the the access. I think that's probably the most important thing is access to care. Um, Okay, now, I I know we don't want to have any kind of political discussion, and I don't really want that either, but we have just gone through a a complete revamp of our health care system in this Mm -hmm. United States. We're still going through it, of course, but the whole idea behind that was to provide access Mm-hmm. And I hear you saying that there's still an access problem. Well, are you talking explain. about availability or are you talking ability to get to it? Well, it's, it's a couple of things. So the way I break down my access answer would be, number one, transportation. So you can have 
access to the service now, but you got to get there, number one. Number two, um, availability of providers. So now that we have more people able to access physicians, now it takes them sometimes maybe a little bit longer to do that because the number of providers has not changed dramatically, but the number of people that have access to healthcare has changed. So that's an issue. And then there's still an affordability issue. Even with the changes that we've made, there are still some people who don't make enough money to afford that. So we yep. still have an access issue. So it's threefold. Okay? Mm-hmm. Threefold. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so it's I see helping. that. And I, and I have seen people that have now can say, okay, now I have something, I can come and see you. So I do see that. It is helping, um, but the problem is bigger than that. Well, and I read an article about you that was in Women's E-News, and I'll give my standard plug for Women's E-News. Love that online publication. The quality of it is amazing, and not just the quality of the information, but also the quality of the production is amazing. Women's E-News. And that's actually how I, I encountered you, um, Keisha, is I saw an article where you were featured and quoted in the article. And in that article, you told a story about a woman who um, was – I believe it was a miscarriage. She was going to miscarry, and if she was going to save the baby, she had to get back to get this medicine within a certain length of time, and she could not get back. Does, is that ringing a bell for you? That is not ringing a bell. Okay. So she was having, okay, I'm thinking, I kind of think I'm understanding oh, what um, you're talking about, maybe. So this is someone who was threatening to have a miscarriage or needs to be on medicine. Um, needed to be on medicine, and she had to come back to get the medicine. And um, okay, here we go. For example, one of her pa- this is you. One of her patients had contracted HIV and was pregnant. The plan was to deliver the baby a little early at 38 weeks to have a controlled situation to reduce the possibility of HIV transmission to the baby. This involves administering an IV drug as quickly as possible to the mom no later than three hours after labor begins. But the patient's water broke at 2 a.m. one day during her 37th week. The ambulance she called would not transport her other child with her, so she had to wait until 5.30 a.m. to get child care and ride to the hospital. And consequently, she missed the window for that medication, and now there's a possibility that her newborn would have contracted HIV. Yes. So that is unfortunately a reality that I did have to go through. Now, the good thing is that the baby actually was negative in initial um, testing, so that's positive. But the, the problem for me was the opportunity of the mom to come in, and, again, that's the transportation issue, okay? Now, yep. I thought to myself, okay, had I known that she had a transportation issue, number one, and a child care coverage issue, then maybe we could have had an action plan in place ahead of time so we could have identified a person in her family who could say, okay, if something happens, I will keep the baby while you go to the hospital, or special arrangements being made with the ambulance in that county to say, okay, if this young lady calls, she has a special pass to do something, okay? That's things that I've thought about now, 2020, hindsight, um, yeah. but I didn't even think to ask her at the time of how her getting to the hospital in time would have been important, right? Yeah. I didn't yeah. think about it. Never thought about asking her. Now I do. <laughs> but yeah, that's an example yeah. of how something as simple as just transportation, even having a system available for an emergency, is not completely available if there's another party involved. Yeah. Right? So uh, that's why I was asking about the question about accessibility to health care, that it's not just, okay, we've got clinics and we've got doctors, but it's mm-hmm. also things like do we actually have transportation to it? Um, you know, so and I think oftentimes when we tr- see these problems, these enormous problems, we tend to look at pieces of it and think, okay, if we solve that, well, then we've got it taken care of. If we build another hospital, we've got it taken care of. If we give them insurance so they can get, you know, so they can pay for it, we've solved that problem. But we don't often think of all of these contingencies. And then when we come up with a solution, we go, well, this problem is still happening. What's the matter with these people? Yeah, it's 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 actually sometimes um, it's it's challenging. It is, because I think that um, I, I, in the last two weeks I've had deliveries with um, women who I hadn't seen for a couple of weeks who kind of showed up in labor and had some things going on with them. And I was like, well, you know, how come you didn't come in? I didn't have a ride. Yeah. Okay. Now, having said that, I think to myself, okay, I know that you have family and friends. They're here because they came to – because the baby's coming. So how how is it that we're not able to – um, work a plan out, and I know people are working, I know everybody's busy, but I think that sometimes the 
and I won't really know until I probably go to that person's house and really understand what that environment is like. But I think the poverty is there to the point where something as basic as getting around is not an option. And that is scary. Yeah. Yeah. That is scary I, yeah, to know I that now right. we have the resource and you can't even get to me to get it. Well, but there again, the possibilities. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I hate to keep coming back to me, but I remember my mother. I live on the West Coast. My mother lives in Ohio, lived in Ohio, and she got breast cancer. Okay, she had the they did the biopsy, and I was the one in the family who got an education. You know, my mother and father were both eighth grade dropouts, and so I was always the one that you know did the research. I was always the one that found the resources, and it was re- frustrating for me because even if I found resources. It didn't necessarily work. For example, when my mother had breast cancer, I said, get a second opinion. Even if you end up with a radical mastectomy, at least you will know that you had to have it. Right. And um, my parents lived very close to the Cleveland Clinic, which is world-renowned for their breast cancer research and their work. I picked up the telephone. I called the the clinic there and I said my mother's 50 miles away they just diagnosed her they've scheduled a radical mastectomy for tomorrow um I think you know can they're they're doing other things would somebody there take a look at her and they the chairman of the department said sure have her come in tomorrow afternoon at two and I'll see her Mm -hmm. I call my family back and I said daddy take her out of the hospital and you can take her to the Cleveland Clinic. You know, my sister will drive you. She'll help you get there. And right. the head of the department will see see you. And right. my father said, oh, Heather, you don't understand. They won't see people like us. Yeah, they will. <laughs> they just yeah. said they would. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but and she, they would probably yeah. prefer to see her than for, to, for her not to be seen and have a worse outcome. Exactly. But that mindset and, mm-hmm. and, you know, that mindset of, well, no, no, they might have said that they would see, but they won't see us, you know. How do you get past that when you're talking about health care? You know, I, I don't understand. I, and, you know, part of me is going, whoa, this conversation is turning more up, more into a poverty discussion than it is a health care discussion. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that's a value as it is because it does apply so much to health care. So um, thank you for, for going along with this. But is that the kind of thing that you are seeing in your practice, you know, the, the attitude like my my family had? Well, I do think that the climate is changing a little bit now. I think because my um, office um, is able to offer services to people who would not normally have access, I see that climate changing. I do see people coming in, I have this problem, I need to t- talk about it. And, and just in the general women's health area, you know, um, abnormal bleeding and someone who's needing a hysterectomy. I mean, I, th- I think I'm, I'm seeing people come in to me sooner now. Or, you know, I haven't had a pap smear in a cup in a while, I need to go ahead and get one. So I think having facilities where affordability is given to the community I think that will start to change because I do every now and then do get women who haven't had a pap smear in 10 years and they come in and they have a big problem. Okay, I do see that. But we are getting a lot more people who haven't been to the doctor, but now they know that we're available, they will come in. So I think the culture is changing. I think it is starting to change, actually. Good. So what impact will that have changed, uh, will that change for women and maternal health? Well, I will tell you, this is this is actually a really good question. So first of all, the good thing is what I've noticed, because I've been in my practice now for a little bit over four years, so I'd see a patient, okay? So now I have families where I'm seeing the daughters, I'm seeing the sisters, and I'm seeing the moms. I can treat three generations now easily just from them getting to know me and then coming, and then I'm starting to see the other people in the family. So what's happening, I think, is having the availability of providers, having the affordability, starting to see the whole family, and having an opportunity to you know, give them opportunity and possibilities as well as treating their health care issues, the education, the pregnancy prevention, the prenatal care, the preconception care, the postpartum care. We have an opportunity to do all of that because now you're interacting with the family because you're seeing all the women that are in the family. So you can kind of reinforce that behavior with everybody. And I think that's part of how things are starting to change. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So... When I found that statistic about the, the you know, 
29 years ago, you know, when I had a baby, my my um, risk of death was 1 in 5,000. Today, a young woman has a baby, and the risk is 1 in 1,800. Do you agree somewhat generally with that statistic, or was I just, I, I mean, I was trying to go to a reputable page to, to look at that, but does that seem similar to you? Well, it's going to be hard for me to fight that published number just because I don't have a to kind of, you know, argue that. But I will tell you that um, seeing maternal deaths is not something that I've encountered um, a lot since I've been in my practice. We do okay. have women who do get very sick afterwards, but we are able to get them better. So that mm-hmm. part I could talk about. <laughs> okay, Keisha, okay. we have a caller, and I am going to go to our caller. Are you there, caller? Hi, yes. How are you all doing? Very good. Fine, thank you. Thank you for calling in. What's your first name and where are you from? Thank you. My name is Jim and I'm calling from New York. Okay. What's your question for the Dr. Jim or do you have a comment? Well, a uh, comment, it, it does seem as though the medical establishment, and I have several relatives that are doctors and um, involved at various paraprofessional levels, is about profit cash. Um and if that is the case, it also then seems that the American system itself, not just America, but many developed nations, do not promote uh, prevention. It promotes surgery and uh, major pharmaceuticals, synthetic drugs, patented drugs. So my question for the doctor is, does she, what does she think about that summary? Am I wrong? Is, is medicine in America really about money and is our American government and pharmaceutical companies both working in tandem to not empower especially poorer communities? Well, okay, good question. I think that is a good question, thank and, and thank you for calling in. Um, I think that medicine is definitely very different. Um, I think that there is a push towards definitely seeing more people in your practice and being more efficient. Um, However, I do think that I know in my – I can speak to my community. um, I don't feel like we're driven by pharmaceuticals in my practice, um, except for the need of being able to help the patients, of course. And I do think that we value taking care of the whole patient. Um, Our prevention efforts, I think, are very good. Our screening efforts are very good. And I think that that's what we do where, where I am, and I think that's what's needed. And if there are um, practices that have lost sight of their value in terms of contributing to health by promoting prevention, then we do have a problem. Um, but I know that in my community, um, we're having people who are getting pap smears that haven't had them in, in forever, and that's because the word is getting out that we can offer that service. We're you know, setting people up for colonoscopies. We work with the Cancer Coalition to get that done if, if there's a problem with finances, getting people to get mammograms. So, um, you know, I'm OBGYN, but I very much function like a primary care in terms of promoting screening. So while I do think that is a possibility, there's a cloud of that going on, um, I think that there's still areas where people are practicing for the health of the community. Does your clinic offer black pepper, St. John's wort, yellow duck, white oak, etc.? The herbal remedies. We well, do not Jim, offer I'm going to step in here a little bit okay. because I don't. I, I I value your question, but I also think that you know we want to focus more on this maternal health thing, and not necessarily alternative medicine, but. From what I've seen, and Keisha, you can confirm this, I think, is that doctors are more open now to looking at all kinds of of solutions and uh, remedies, aren't they? Yes, and I would agree. And I was just going to mention that we don't offer any medicines, but we do. I do counsel my patients, my menopausal patients. I counsel them about, about natural options. So, yes. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much for calling, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, now I hope I didn't just cut you off, Keisha, did I? No, I'm I'm still here. Oh, good. <laughs> they, they got these big red X's here on my board, and I'm thinking, oh boy, I did hit the right X, didn't I? Um, <laughs> so this is this has been one of those days, Keisha. I have to tell you. That's okay. Um, and and I have to also thank you so much for bearing with us during our glitches today. We've we've had several. Um, nevertheless, um, I want to get back to this whole maternal thing. And what are we doing to improve it? What are the resources for women out there who may be low income and who find themselves pregnant? or who want to work against becoming pregnant. Do you have some resources for people? 
Um, I do, and I want to just talk real quickly. Um, I'll try to get it all in, but I really um, want you to look at maternal health and also infant mortality because they kind of go hand in hand. Um, I read an article that recently that said it was a report that said um, infant mortality is a surrogate measure of how well a society ensures the health of its people, particularly women and children. So using the infant mortality as a driver to how we approach women's health has actually become very important because we know that everything that happens with a woman, even before she gets pregnant, that maternal health is what's important. So in a statewide level, we definitely have a lot of um, collaborations going on. The Georgia Regional Perinatal System, um, there's a Georgia Perinatal Collaborative, and a lot of other groups that are really putting together to figure out how do we create interventions to help with our women's health. In terms of resources in different areas, of course, you know, the federally qualified health centers or the community health centers, they're like gold mines because if they can offer the, the affordable, affordability for our community, then the women who before could not get seen can start to do that. Um, of course, um, patients taking advantage of um, the availability of insurance packages now through the ACO, that's going to make a difference as well, so really looking into that. There are these programs um, referred to as centering pregnancy programs. They do kind of like group prenatal care sessions. It's been really found to help increase the educational perspective um, for women who are actually pregnant and also work on following them after. Those programs are a lot of times offered through health departments around the state, and someone could easily Google centering programs and really figure out um, where that would be available. There are a lot of push to start community-based home visiting programs. The Perinatal Health Partners Program in Savannah, and there's another program called Baby Love in Valdosta, and they do what's called, I would refer to, as an intensive in-home follow-up. They check on the women. If they don't come, they go pick them up. They bring them in for their appointments. They help them with their social um, issues in terms of, you know, um, being able to help find a job or getting GED classes or, you know, helping them prepare, learn about breastfeeding, um, talking about contraception, developing a contraceptive plan. So there are a lot of push in these and um, starting to in the communities to really start to work on women one-on-one. -on -one. And that's what I was talking about before, about extending beyond just the physician's office, just the physician's responsibility. It's a team approach to do all that. Um, there are programs yeah. like the Planning for Healthy Babies and Title X, which are, are Medicaid-sponsored programs, which actually will provide and cover the cost of birth control. Um, so really it's removing a lot of those cost barriers, um, definitely, in, in that arena. That's amazing resources. If a person isn't in Georgia, and of course our show is listened to worldwide, um, where is there one general place that a woman might start looking for? I mean, whenever anybody asks me, and again, you know, I mean, politics aside, if somebody has no no resources, I'll say Planned Parenthood. Go to Planned Parenthood if you can find one, because they'll help you. And if they can't help you, they'll try and find you some place that will get you help. Is there some other national organization that you can think of wh where a woman might want to start if she's looking yeah, for? Our health departments are 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 a good resource. Um, that's Great. usually a feeder a lot of times for even for my office. People usually go there because it's fairly inexpensive. They can get in pretty quickly, and that's a good start starting place. So definitely contacting health departments. The CDC website actually is also very good in terms of information regarding CDC women's as health. CDC centers for disease control. Correct. Yes, and so that's another okay. that's another website. Now, there's a, one other um, um, plug I wanted to give for a program that I really recently learned about. There's a new campaign called Every Woman Every Time, and it actually is an evidence-based collaborative effort that was based off of a program that's actually in California. We have one here now in Georgia, and basically they're really promoting their preconception care. Um, they have a lot of material online really regarding um, promoting that prenatal care and that preconception care, getting women to really be empowered about taking care of themselves. They have specific recommendations, for example, for women who are of reproductive age, like taking your folic acid, managing your weight. They actually have specific recommendations for women um, based on their chronic disease. So if you have high blood pressure, what should you do? If you have diabetes, what should you do? So there's some really yeah. good education out there regarding recommendations that people can really kind of look at, not just the individuals, but doctors in the community, churches even. When we think about people that are being supportive, you know, a lot of times we think was community or community means our church, it means your civic organization, it means your volunteer groups, it even means your school. There are lots of avenues that we can use to really promote health that I don't think we're doing a good job of right now. Yeah. Keisha, I, there's so, we could just keep talking for hours, I think. I mean, really, we could. Um, I think that um, 
you know, we've covered a lot. We did kind of stray a lot and, and focused more on poverty, I think, than, than the actual maternal health. But I think that there's a good reason for that, because I think poverty and maternal health uh, need to go hand in hand, and it's, it's difficult to discuss one without the other. Keisha, I thank you for your work in this field. Um, and I, I, I usually end the show with a quote, but I have to tell you we're a little bit out of time, so I'm, I'm going to let the quote go, and I will suffice it to say that, you know, maternal care is key to all of us because it's our future generations. It's not only the girls now that are having babies. It's the babies that those babies have down the road. So it's crucial for us to pay attention to maternal health, and I'm glad to hear that uh, somebody like Keisha uh, Callan, Dr. Callan, is out there doing that for us. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.